Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders past and present and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Morning, everyone. Good morning. Nice to have you here again, Grace. Yes, it's lovely to be here. Yeah. Cold morning this morning. Yeah, very cold. I was thinking, what is this? So I um, had to give myself a few minutes for the car to defog. I haven't had to do that for a few weeks. So thought it was the end, but no. <laughs> nice to be in our co- cosy studio and hope our listeners are somewhere warm as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so how's everyone's week been? It's been quite busy, just doing work as usual and uni. And yeah, it was quite hectic as well. Yeah, it's that busy time of the year for university students with uh, big assignments due. Yeah, because we're actually going towards the end of the semester. I actually had my week break the week before last week. Mm. And so, yeah, just coming back into it, it was like, it it was okay. But then, like, you know, it's... um. You feel like you kind of don't want to get it, get back into it, but then you yeah. uh, kind of have to like go for it because you're towards the end and chasing for assignments, so it's really exhausting. Yeah, yeah pushing over that barrier. Yeah, that's yes. true. Yeah, just hearing university students talk about exam stress gives me um, reminders <laughs> and anxiety <laughs> of those times. We- <laughs> laying in bed at night like oh Oh my god it's the hardest when it's it's the hardest when you're trying to get up in the morning and to be honest I was also almost couldn't really get up today as well because like oh I felt so tired from yesterday and I kind of don't want to get up today but you know I have to keep powering go for the grind (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, it's the same as at my partner's place I was huddled under the doona so I could still read news and better not wake them up because I couldn't quite bring myself to uh, exit the bed yet (laughs) Mm. but we're all here yeah (laughs) great and yeah you and I are preparing for a bit of a holiday separately but at the same time (laughs) Laura and I managed to organize simultaneous holidays so Grace will be chairing the show for a little while. Um, Ella and I are both heading up to Queensland. Yeah, true. um, I'm actually just going to Queensland for a couple of days at the end. Um, I've got a lot of babies to visit up there. I've got about three friends with babies from the last month. Oh, really? um, I know. Yeah, it's all happened. (laughs) Um, But before then, yeah, I'm going to go camping in New South Wales, which will be fun. Which part of New South Wales? Uh, So the southern coast mostly, which I haven't really spent much time in. Being from Queensland originally, I've always kind of done the northern coast if I were to go to New South Wales. Um, but uh, where are we going? There's one place a little bit inland called uh, Kwama, if you've heard of that. No. Um, and Tell us more. <laughs> it's about, it's not so far from Mimosa Rocks, that kind of area, if you know it. Um, my geography is bad, so I can't give you too many landmarks, but it looks very beautiful um, down there. So, yeah, 
Well, I'll keep my um, fingers crossed uh, for the weather for you. Yes, me too. <laughs> I'm heading up a bit further north uh, to, I think, the central Queensland coast. So, yeah, also hoping that the sun stays out. Oh, nice. And what part of the, like, what town? Uh, to, somewhere near Early Beach. Oh, uh, I don't. It was organised by my husband, and um, which is quite unusual. I normally do the holiday <laughs> organising, but a nice change. Uh, yeah, given we haven't been anywhere for so long, I didn't really mind. And if the word sun is in the yeah, <laughs> itinerary, say, at the very least it should be warm. Probably better exactly. beach weather yeah. than for me. <laughs> I've actually got a frozen shoulder at the moment, so I won't be able to do oh, any no. swimming. So, um, but I was saying last night. I'm not even focused on that because it's just so nice to be going away somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it feels good <laughs> knowing it's approaching. <laughs> mm. And what have we got on today for the show? Yeah, let's dive into the rundown. So first up, we're going to take a listen uh, to something from the Yena Passaran team. Um, so they spoke with Dr. Terry Gibbons about her book, The Roots of Racism, The Politics of White Supremacy in the US and Europe. And at 7.30, we'll be chatting with Susanna Bevilacqua, who's the founder of Moral Fairground, which is a social enterprise in Nam, whose goal is to build a thriving, collaborative and socially conscious community through the delivery of education, information and networking opportunities. And they've got a competition on at the moment called the Early Ethical Enterprise Pitch. So she's going to tell us all about that. Excellent. Yep, and then moving on after that at 7.50, we'll be looking at a recap interview of um, Marissa from Doing Time did with Uncle Jack Charles, who unfortunately passed away yesterday. And we'll always remember as a great man who fought for the First Nations people and a legendary actor. The interview will be speaking about systemic issues with insidious questions of proof of aboriginality, which led to the Australian Council for the Arts amending their policy. Mm, well, it'd be lovely to hear. It was very sad to hear of his passing yeah. yesterday. Yeah. And I also wanted to acknowledge um, the death in custody of Gundich Amara and Wurundjeri artist Clinton Austin, who died in custody at the Loddon Prison in Victoria on Sunday. And that was the second Aboriginal death in custody in Victoria in the last five weeks. Wow. And the third um, for this year. So, yeah, there's an in coronial inquest happening um, that the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service are heavily involved in. So, yeah, it's very sad to hear another death in custody and really important to acknowledge it amongst all the media about the Queen. Um, yeah. yeah. Let's not forget what happens back home. Yeah, absolutely. Sad event. And, um, yeah, we're going to finish up the festival this morning uh, speaking to Kirsty, um, And she's the director of the Zero Waste Festival, uh, which is on this weekend in Melbourne and Fed Square. So it's sort of everything about, um, yeah, sustainability and uh, recycling and a lot of different projects. There's a clothing swap. Um, and she's actually sent in a couple of free passes if anyone wants them. So most things are free. Uh, the clothing swap, you do have to pay a small fee unless you call up to a 3CR this morning or send us a message um, if we can get those numbers going. <laughs> yeah, the um, number is 94198377. There'll be someone answering the phone from 9am. So if you want to call in for those three free passes... 
94198377. That's right. And yeah, that's a pass to the adults clothing swap and there's also a children's one. So um, either two separate ones or one family pass if you want to go in and swap clothes for the whole family. Sounds um, like a great event that I was reading through. Some yeah. of the activities and, yeah, there's a lot of fun stuff for children and, yeah, a whole lot of different um, recycling um, uh, small enterprises being yeah. represented there. And, yeah, a really good way to just find out and sort of maybe reinvigor your efforts, learn yeah. something new and um, maybe share some knowledge as well with like-minded upcyclers and recyclers definitely i think there's a lot of people with though they want to be uh, sustainable but don't know how often or there's so mm. much information so hopefully yeah this yeah. uh makes it all a bit more straightforward and yeah like you said a lot of great events so workshops there's uh, some really good panel discussions happening um and a film being screened so yeah yeah all, um, that'd be interesting yeah yeah i think it's really good to bring all these um aspects of recycling together because I think we get it in little bites all the time and Mm. different obviously different processes for different items but bringing it together as a collective gives it real force and you know you can gather information and new tools uh, across a a band of different areas yeah it's even harder when you try to be consistent with it like doing Mm. it all the time which is like because you might feel like, okay, I want to go for this now and I'm going to do it. I'm going to recycle today. But then, you know, after that, you might feel like, oh, no, I don't want to do it. Or maybe I forgot about it. So it's just the consistency mm. and like trying to it co- contribute to zero waste. You know, yeah, so. and it does actually take quite a lot of room. I'm very um, obsessed with it at home, but we do have <laughs> a lot of different sections of the house that are yeah. devoted to the items that I've sort of gathered waiting to go off somewhere. Um, along with the compost bin that's yeah. we've got community composting in our area in, in oh, Port Phillip. Such a good idea. Yeah, it's <laughs> great. Um, but that household chore is delegated to my daughter, so the, <laughs> <laughs> the bin kind of gets quite large and the, the ants have a big party before it goes yeah, off. Yeah, you've got to be <laughs> quick on the turnover with those exactly. compost bins, especially as summer coming. Anyway, mm. on that note, yes. have you got a lovely song for us? I have. Oh. Yeah, let's get um, started with a song from Sincerely Grizzly. Uh, this is Two Countries of Mind. Got endless obsessions 
You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and we just heard Sincerely Grizzly with uh, Two Countries of Mind. Um, and now we're going to hand over to Andy Fleming and Cam Smith from Yena Passaran. I'm joined by Terry Gibbons, who is a professor of political science at McGill University and the author of The Roots of Racism, The Politics of White Supremacy in the US and Europe. Thanks for joining us, Terry. Oh, it's my pleasure. I guess just to begin with, what was the impetus for writing The Roots of Racism? 
Well, really, it's a compilation of the research I've been doing since the late 1990s on the radical right and anti-immigrant politics. And, you know, really, one of the things I've come to realize over the last few, you know, really five years or so is that we're seeing this conflation of immigration and racism so that immigrants are, are, regardless of their background, are facing similar types of racism that we've seen throughout history. And one of the things that I really wanted to do is make sure that we had a touchstone from a historical perspective of why are we seeing the same kinds of attitudes and even, you know, the rise of anti-immigrant, you know, far-right parties on both sides of the Atlantic. And of course, I know it goes beyond that, but really my focus was you know, the fact that we have these 400 years of history around racism and slavery and so on that are really interconnected. Some might uh, characterize the book as being uh, critical of uh, things, Uh, perhaps presenting some theory about race, uh, which is a topic that has come in for some uh, discussion in the United States and elsewhere lately. Could you contextualize historically the current moral panic amongst conservatives about critical race theory? Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's, I would call it abject fear. And, you know, they're in a completely defensive position at this point, because what they're realizing is that as the United States and, you know, and other countries, similar trends are happening, become more diverse and people are, you know, I mean, really, in many ways, Obama epitomizes what, you know, their greatest fear. You know, you have a a black president who comes in who's, and frankly, you know, Obama was very moderate for, you know, even for a Democrat in the United States. You know, he, he was very careful about how he pursued his policies and so on. And so realistically, he, he wasn't the extremist that people claimed he was. So, I mean, to put it in the broader context, though, you know, that we've had this long history in the U.S. And of course, it's very much linked with uh, Europe around immigration restrictions and trying to keep these countries basically fairly homogenous. And of course, in the 1960s, that shifted in, in the U.S. and Canada. And in Europe, you saw the, the increasing flows of migrant guest workers who were coming from places like Algeria and, and uh, Southern Africa, you know, the sub, I should say Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East and so on. And so you saw this increase in people of Muslim background. And so the, the panic amongst conservatives is that they're losing power and they're losing power to a minority that is growing faster in terms of you know just numbers and is having a, an impact on their ability to govern. And exploring the roots of racism, Terry, your uh, book examines uh, several centuries of history and mm-hmm. you consider how racism is linked to colonialism and the transatlantic slave trade. Could you elaborate uh, a little on that relationship? So we know that, actually, I was recently in Portugal and was reminded of the fact that, you know, the Portuguese were responsible for you know, taking four, about 4 million uh, Africans from Africa to the New World, both the, you know, across the U.S. and the Caribbean and, and South uh, Latin America. So, you know, particularly Brazil. And so, you know, the, the connections, those historical connections are important because there are relationships that still persist that go back to that time period. And that includes the fact that, you know, there's still, you know, basically you have Brazil that's, uh, you has a large 
population of African descent and that, you know, they are treated differently uh, depending on their skin tone and, and things like that. And of course, in the U.S., we have that, that long history of the, the slave trade that led to, uh, you know, basically people from Africa uh, in you know, dire circumstances. And even after the Civil War, you know, basically we had the, the, you know, a short period of reconstruction and then um, an ongoing campaign that included the Jim Crow laws to this day, uh, mass incarceration that still impact people from these particular groups dis- disparately. And that disparate impact is something we have to pay attention to and look at the connections historically. You know, it's not enough to just say, well, you know, that happened 400 years ago or, or 200 years ago. We have to understand that the effects of those things are still being felt to this day. And so um, I can see it when I go to, to Portugal and I see the you know, African immigrants and, and people of African descent who've come there because they happen to speak Portuguese. And, and so there, there's so many ways that those, those connections are still very much in play. And you, know, you have Algerians in France because of that colonial history, right? It's not just because colonial, you know, Algerians like France. So those, those colonial histories are very much intertwined with how those people got to where they are and how they're being treated today. The costs of racism have been dreadful, but I guess who do you think benefits from racism? What does what's the relationship uh, between these racialized practices and other uh, forms of social power? Do you think? Well, it's interesting. I, I refer to um, the Some of Us by Heather McGee. You know, it, there's a whole economic theory that's that's developing around these ideas because. What we're seeing, so it's 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 a lot. It revolves, sorry, it revolves a lot around uh, political power and not so much economic power. Although political power and economic power go together, and so the beneficiaries of it are, are clearly people who feel like they they want to maintain a more homogenous society, and, and that's I think why you're seeing this panic amongst conservatives. And, you know, and obviously, you know, I, I have to specify it's mostly white conservatives, not all, but mostly white conservatives. So basically you have a situation. So I love the swimming pool example where, you know, in the 1960s when swimming pools, you know, the, the federal government says you have to desegregate your swimming pools. Well, rather than actually desegregate, they filled the pools in, you know, they shut down school systems. You know, does that in their economic benefit? No, but it is in their benefit in terms of wanting to maintain, you know, a pure you know, group that wasn't going to be tainted by, you know, we don't want to swim, you know, with these black people or brown people or whoever. And so it's very hard often to find a strong economic rationale for some of the behavior. And particularly if you read the, the book on dying of whiteness by Jonathan Metzl, if you think about the fact that we had hundreds of thousands of people in the United States who were willing to listen to a leader at the time who was telling them, you know, not to get vaccinated and don't believe this stuff and, and who many who died. And because they, they just held on to this belief. So a lot of this, what's driving this is this beliefs of white supremacy of, of, you know, the, this idea that you, you can't trust these people who aren't, you know, with us. I'm, I'm doing air quotes with my hands. And, you know, this just hanging on to these beliefs that are literally killing people. Um, and it's not killing, you know, the people they want to be killed. I mean, there's a, a, 
a quote that I, I have in, in my book from a woman, you know, we, Trump was supposed to hurt them, you know, not us. And so, you know, it's, it's hard to find a strong economic rationale for the behave, these behaviors. It has more to do with, you know, maintaining political power. Um, I mean, you look at the, everything from, you know, the gerrymandering and the, uh, you know, trying to keep uh, people of color from voting. They've carved up districts and states just to make sure that, that people can't vote. Now, I can't say that's happening in Europe. Um, it's not. But what's happening instead is, you know, we have broader party systems where you have, you know, these far right parties that are on the rise. And the the fact that, you know, the for example, the Rassemblement in, in France, so the red led by Marine Le Pen is, is doing so well in the AfD in Germany, although it's really interesting to look at the rise of the Greens as well. You know, it's really upsetting the entire political system. I was just I'm in the process of writing an article or just kind of a commentary on what's happened to the right in uh, Europe. And but you can't talk about what's happening to the right without looking at the disappearance of the left. Not completely. Um, you know, they're in pow- power in Germany, but you know, the Party Socialist has, has just been devastated France and the par- Communist Party has practically disappeared. And so there's these different dynamics that are happening. In the U.S., you're seeing the Republican Party, you know, we just had the speech by President Biden, who is talking about, you know, authoritarianism and fascism on the rise in the Republican Party. And, you know, we're seeing it in various ways. And obviously it's not, I don't think it's the vast majority, but certainly a, a, enough to be pushing the, that particular party in the direction of basically trying to keep people from voting and saying, you know, your vote doesn't count and that these elections are frauds because we didn't get the outcome we wanted. So that's where you're seeing the, these. And then frankly, to me, it's very, you know, it's irrational, but it's this desire to maintain a system of power that has been in place for hundreds of years. Uh, Terry, could you speak to the difference between white supremacy and white nationalism? Yes, thank you for asking that question. It's so funny because I had that uh, discussion with my publisher because they were asking, well, should, the, should it say white supremacy on the cover or white nationalism? So the, the reason I stuck with white supremacy, and I actually referenced some articles on that in the book, is that white nationalism to me is this desire, and to a lot of us, those of us who study this, is the, the desire to create a white state. You know, that's what you had, for example, in South Africa. White supremacy is a bigger system it's, that is very tied into capitalism. And I should have mentioned that, you know, when you're asking the question earlier about the economics, because it, this is all, you know, white supremacy is very much tied into to capitalism in the sense that if you look at um, the inequality that has been on the rise in, you know, in the U.S. and Europe and across the board, pretty much, you know, that has a lot to do uh, with the, the linkages to white supremacy in the sense that, the laws and the uh, tax policies and you know, who gets uh, bailouts, who gets loans, all these things, you know, who gets venture capital? You know, I lived in Silicon Valley for a long time. You know, the people who are getting it, it's all part of a system of basically I, I consider Silicon Valley. It's just, you know, one white guy giving money to his the, his friends, kids, so they can start a company, <laughs> you know? I mean, basically it's, it's horrendous when you look at the numbers. I think 3% of venture capital goes to women. So it's a sexist thing as well. 
but also you know, 0.03% of all venture capital goes to, to black women. Um, and you know, to, to black people overall, I think it's like 1%. I mean, the percentages of this huge amount of wealth that's being tossed around in the venture capital world is, is going to all white males. And if you look at the Fortune 500, you know, all these things, you know, you can see that all the, the, the concentration of wealth is very much, you know, in, uh, you know, the, the white side of the, the ledger. And, you know, we can point to a few, you know, black billionaires, but they, you know, just in terms of the, the transfer of wealth, generational wealth, you know, again, the some of us, Heather McGee gets into a lot of this, you know, it's just been very difficult for African-Americans in the U.S. And even if you, you know, look at you know, immigrants and people of color in Europe to, you know, to be able to build up any wealth. The book ranges across, you know, a range of different territories and you're at pains to develop a comparative study. Yeah. I did notice that Australia, or the Australian example, is referenced in the book, especially in terms of articulating how uh, race and racism operates on a global level. Can you say a little bit about uh, the global mm-hmm. colour line, how that's developed and how it manifests in the 21st century? Right. Yeah. And I think at some point I'm going to have to elaborate on that because it really pulls in the, you know, kind of international relations side of it. And I really recommend um, Robert Vitalis, also known as Bob Vitalis, because he's a good friend. His work has really looked at this, you know, kind of from a historical perspective very closely. And, you know, you think about places like Australia that were colonies, but then also it's funny because Australia and Canada, of course, have so much in common in the sense that you know they were colonies. You know, people came, and you know the indigenous were pushed to the side, and and in many since you know in a sense of genocide in many ways, and from not just from the colonial colonialization itself, but from disease, various you know things that impacted these populations and decimated these populations, and. So, and then you had, you know, the, it's funny because the U.S., Canada, and Australia all had these white-focused immigration policies. And that's why I think it's important to, you know, talk about the conflation of immigration and race. Because you go back to the 1920s when these theories around eugenics and scientific racism were you know, touting the superiority of, of white people and even, you know, coming up with definitions. And this impacted immigration policies in, Can- in Canada. And in uh, Australia, just like it did in the U.S., where there were, you know, you had white Canada policies, you had a white Australia policy. In the U.S., we just called, you know, national origins quotas. But basically, the goal was to make the immigration flows more white and less Catholic and so on. (laughs) Um, They didn't, you know, the Catholics, you know, Southern Europeans, Italians, you know, they were also discriminated against. And, you know, up until the 1960s, you know, that was basically the law of the land. And then you saw the changes in Canada, Australia, and the U.S. And so this conflation of immigration and race is important to understand because our immigration policies were driven by this idea of white supremacy in terms of intelligence, in terms of, you know, capacity and what we wanted in to be coming into our countries. Now the U S had a conundrum because of course you already had this large black population that couldn't, you know, you couldn't do much with it except oppress it. And so that's why you get the Jim Crow laws and so on. But uh, you know, there's a, a strong linkage between the U S Canada and Australia in terms of those immigration policies and their connection to race. Terry, what forms of political representation do you think best allow for anti-racist policies to be enacted? 
So I think if you look at, it's interesting, I've looked back at the 1960s when you saw these important, and actually in the UK, it goes back to the the late 1950s. And I've actually looked at this in my book, Legislating Equality. You know, why do you get policies that are focused on anti-racism or anti-discrimination? And a lot of it has to do with, you know, kind of trade-offs. So you have politicians on the left who, you know, part of it has to do with the fact that left politicians for a long time saw the potential for these diverse communities, whether they're black or Asian or whatever they may be as potential voters. Whereas, you know, conservative parties, although they may bring these people into the party, they don't necessarily see them as a natural constituency. You know, there's a whole issue of, you know, left versus right and focus on more social programs versus, you know, tax cuts for the wealthy, you know, all these kinds of things that play into it. You know, I think I do see some twinges of hope within um, what is a very bleak uh, political landscape. But it's going to take a lot of work. And I think political science has a role to play in you know, making sure that we put these issues front and center. Well, we'll have to take a twinge of hope. Terry, thanks so much for joining us. If people want to read more of your work, your website is terrygivens.com and you are on Twitter at Terry Givens. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. This was fun. You're listening to Breakfast, and we just heard Andy Fleming and Cam Smith from Yena Passaran in an interview with Dr. Terry Givens. Um, so a big thank you to them for sharing that segment with us today. Um, and you can tune into Yena Passaran every Thursday from 4.30 till 5 p.m. Uh, we're going to take a short break, but we'll be back with you shortly. All the way from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and touring Australia for the very first time is folk duo Watch House, formerly known as Mandolin Orange. From coffee houses to major festivals, Watch House has played it all with their heavenly harmonies, songs, and music. Watch House play the Melbourne Recital Centre 11th of October with support from the wonderful Charm of Finches. Also playing at Out on the Weekend at Seaworks in Williamstown, 8th of October. Love Police, proud supporters of 3CR. Brave men fall with the battle cry. Tears fill the eyes of their loved ones and their brothers. So it went. Every Wednesday at 11am, join me, Bunzolini, at the fire on Community Radio 3CR. Three hours of historically informed, critical analysis of Aboriginal affairs and the ongoing political movement for land rights, treaty, sovereignty and the cessation of genocide. Featuring the best of black music. Bundles Fire, 11am to 2pm, every Wednesday on Community Radio 3CR. Our next guest is the founder of Moral Fairground, a social enterprise based in Nam, whose goal is to build a thriving, collaborative and socially conscious community through the delivery of education, information and networking opportunities. Susanna Bevelacqua started the organisation in 2009 after witnessing the effects 
of mass consumerism in Southeast Asia. She's here to explain what makes an enterprise a social enterprise and to tell us about the early ethical enterprise pitch competition, which is on now. Welcome to breakfast, Susanna. Thank you, and thank you for having me. It's fantastic to have you here. So um, just to foreground the discussion, we hear these labels, ethical enterprise, social enterprise, social purpose business. Are these labels interchangeable? And what does a social enterprise mean to you? So they are interchangeable. Um, over the years, I suppose, before the social enterprise movement started, um, people were using different terms to, to sort of call a social enterprise. You know, sometimes it was called a fair trade business, a social enterprise, an ethical business. Um, but the essence of what a, makes a social enterprise, which was, um, you mentioned before, you, you know, you wanted to know what that meant, is that it's a, it's a business that has a, a positive uh, social, economic and environmental impact. Uh, so at the core of the business purpose, um, visions and values is that they deliver positive social outcomes. Um, and also that profits derived from commercial practices are directed towards those outcomes. Okay. We'll, we'll come back to the profit aspect of the business later. I just wanted to unpack the um, criteria a little bit further with you. So mm. with the emphasis being on the impact of a business, um, mm -hmm. where does that uh, sit with the practices and values of the organisation uh, throughout the production process? You know, for example, ethical sourcing of materials and fair employment practices. Yeah. So uh, to give you an example, for example, um, a social enterprise here in, in Australia uh, that's, uh, let's say, generating or providing jobs for um, youth at risk, uh, those profits are directed to training and providing education and training programs for youth and providing jobs for youth. Uh, so that's one way of, 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 of directing um, the profits. Uh, the same with, uh, you know, the principles of fair trade, for example. Uh, fair trade is now considered a social enterprise. Uh, profits are directed back to, for example, communities um, or, um, you know, they have a community fund where money goes back to this community so they can build uh, schools or, um, you know, in increase the capacity building. Uh, depends what that community needs. So it, it's, all the, it's all directed at how the funds uh, and how the money is, um, you know, earned or made through the commercial practices is funneled. Um, in, in terms of fair trade and social enterprise, a little bit different, uh, but in essence, um, the 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 uh, you know the gut of what what the enterprise is, it, it's the same. It has to have uh, positive outcomes for the community that you're working with, um, and you know if it's if it's overseas in in, a, in Cambodia, for example, manufacturing clothes then you need to provide proper employment uh, opportunities for people, um, you know, wage uh, that is equal for male and female, uh, possibility for people to have a fund like a superannuation fund, uh, those lab, um, labour and, and other, um, you know, um, uh, 
pillars that the fair trade principles follow. But in essence, the it, it's a social enterprise model. Excellent. And how do you get involved uh, at your organisation um, encouraging businesses to measure social output? Is that an important component of what you uh, do? We we're not we don't have we're not a social traders or a fair trade we don't certify businesses uh, for being ethical social enterprise. Uh, but what we do we uh, create events and programs and activities that encourage that discussion uh, between businesses that are social enterprise and ethical businesses, but also communities that want to learn more about it. Um, and uh, we do this by running events, workshops. Um, we have uh, an ethical lifestyle hub for those uh, businesses that want to be part of this community. Um, we don't actually certify, uh, but we do look at when we um, bring people on, for example, at our ethical lifestyle hub, have they got a specific certification? How do they uh, claim that they are ethical um, or a social enterprise? Yeah, so this is quite a big um, issue at the moment with the Australian Securities and Investments Commission in terms of uh, financial products. They've had a bit yeah. of a crackdown on what they call greenwashing, which is when mm-hmm. a company makes misleading statements about the sustainability of a financial product. Um, mm-hmm. I just wondered what sort of requirements are placed on businesses more broadly who, who claim to be um, social purpose businesses to ensure that consumers can have faith in that label? Mm. Um, Social enterprises and and, and fair trade businesses um, go through a certification process, which is audited uh, every so many years. So they have to be very open and transparent about what is happening in the business. They need to demonstrate uh, how that happens through this auditing process. Now, uh, obviously, auditing is not always 100% uh, correct, but we need to trust in that system. Um, And the fact that it's done regularly uh, also provides sort of some peace of mind that uh, what we've seen is is, is, is not just, um, you know, uh, information that they put out there to to sort of mislead consumers. you know, unlike the financial industry, social enterprises or fair trade businesses generally are not, uh, in particular social enterprises, are not large, large businesses. You can see the impact they're having. You know, it could be someone like um, Sister Work that employs people um, from migrant community and uh, creates jobs opportunity. And you can physically see that. They have a place where you can see it. They, they have reporting. They have annual reports where you can see it. And they have an auditing system as well. I see. And you now have this competition on, the Early Ethical Enterprise Pitch Competition. What sorts of people and ideas are you encouraging there? So the beauty of this competition is it's open to anybody uh, that has a startup startup idea or, or perhaps has been operating for less than 24 months. We consider that still a new enterprise. Um, that has potential, you know, the business potential to have a positive impact, either socially, economically, or environmentally. It has to be um, an Australian-based business, but it can have impact in communities outside uh, Australia. Because it's not specific to uh, tech or, or, you know, an industry, 
um, or a segment of an industry, we get diverse type of application through this um, uh, through this uh, through this process. Uh, from uh, you know, in the past, we had an organisation called Small Fires that were making books. Um, that recognised the diversity of children. Uh, so they were representing people of colour in their books and um, all real stories of what happens in families. And they won because, uh, you know, most, a lot of books are not, children do not relate to a lot of stories. Um, uh, last year, Linkmate um, won the awards. Uh, they uh, created an app uh, for um People that might be experiencing some uh, mental, uh, you know, it could be a mental breakdown or need someone to talk to. Uh, and it's a peer-to-peer uh, app where people can just link in and uh, speak to someone uh, they don't know perhaps and just share or, you know, share some information that's not going to go anywhere else, you know. Uh, so so there, there's, there's a lot of diversity. We're not, um, it's not specific. Um but um, that's what makes this um, pitch competition so different from so many others. Can you just go over the sort of stage of the project uh, in terms of um, eligibility? You mentioned it is a project that has been going for less than two years. Does it mean that the the software or the the idea has been developed into a product and... The organisation is wanting support to perhaps distribute it or uh, get the word out, or is it a a product that has not yet been developed and is still at the idea stage? Both. Um, So it could be at the idea stage um, and it could be uh, a product that has really developed but hasn't really launched you know sometimes people take two years to develop uh, an idea and a product that might be registered as a business but not really been out there and started making sales or testing the product in the market Um, and that's why we put 24 months so we look at that when the application comes through obviously if it's a thriving business after 24 months But we allow for that because what we've had in the past, people say, I've I've registered two years ago, but I haven't really started or we've just uh, launched this idea and we need to, uh, you know, see if it's it's, uh, feasible or not. A lot of, you know, a lot of people in this space start ideas because they're very passionate about it. Uh, Sometimes they might not have tested it properly (laughs) or uh, not got really advice. And so, um, yeah. So the application is really, are you a startup? Or are you less than 24 months in total? Um, can you demonstrate that it has social and economic environmental impact? You know, that's part of the application process. You have to describe how that does. Uh, and how does it make a difference once it's launched? What, what will that impact be? So it's not an exhausting application, uh, but we do need that information to be able to, to go through it. Um, and uh, there's some, you know, great prizes uh, to be won for the uh, winner and the finalist. Do we still have you there on the line, Susanna? Yes. Can you hear me? Uh, yes. I just uh, thought we might have lost you there for a moment. No, no, I'm still here. I've just had a sick of my 
my coffee. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfectly all right. It's uh, the coffee hour. Uh, so you were talking about the uh, support that um, successful entrants might receive from Moral Fairground. Yes. So um, basically we um, there's over $50,000 worth of support. So what we've done, we've gathered uh, a whole bunch of experts in different areas and they will be supporting uh, their winner and some of the finalists uh, through their process of getting this um, ethical enterprise started or, um, you know, if they've established it, perhaps to how to move it forward in a different direction. Uh, so, for example... Um, we have, uh, you know, Be The Change. Uh, it's a digital agency uh, that will help someone, uh, you know, uh, on an online revenue strategy about e-commerce. How do, you, how do you take your enterprise and how do you create an e-commerce strategy? Uh, and this is all free, you know. Some of these sessions are worth thousands of dollars if you had to. <laughs> you have to pay yourself. Um, we have uh, Empower Leader, for example, um, it's, it's a leadership program, but also accounting, coaching, and mentoring program. So we take the uh, winner for six months under their wing and help them uh, with mentoring and coaching, in particular for a, a, a personal, um, person, you know, as a person, how they see themselves. Um, we have. Uh, Common Code offering workshops value $2,000 with their digital strategy. And the list goes on. I mean, there's, there's like I said, there's $50,000 worth of, um, of, of uh, access. Uh, there is uh, $1,000 worth of price, but the beauty is in the mentoring and support that we're receiving from the diverse list of uh, experts in the area. And not to mention the possibility that it offers um, for them through these other contacts that they'll be making. Sounds like a wonderful opportunity. And how can listeners get involved with your organisation or find out more about this pitch competition? Yeah. So if they go on our website, www.moralfairground.com.au, there's a tab called Events and Programs. They tick on there and they'll see the first link is the uh, Early Ethical Entrepreneurial Pitch Competition. Just link on that. Uh, and go through the uh, process that tells you, uh, you know, about how to apply and so on. Now, we do, um, the application do expire on the 21st of October, so we need to submit um, anyone that's interested by that time. Uh, we say to people, doesn't matter if your idea is not 100%, just submit it. Um, it's very important that um, you get your idea out uh, on paper and that, um, uh, because if it's an idea and you don't tell anybody always going to be just an idea <laughs> so we encourage people to put it down uh, because once you put it down and you visualize it uh, it makes much difference and even if you don't win you know what the past entrance is said or finalist it's just being able to pitch and getting the feedback from the judges on the day it's very important and some of the judges actually do approach the finalists uh, even though they might not be the winners, to work with them separately anyway. So I, I think there's a lot of potential for anyone that would like to be involved. Yeah, certainly uh, sounds like that. Um, thank you very much for your time this morning. It's been great hearing about what your organisation does and it's also great to know that that support and 
those avenues for support are available to people with great ideas uh, in this space. Um, all, all, all great when uh, you're making a social impact. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Susanna Bevilacqua, founder of Moral Fairground, speaking about social enterprises and the early ethical enterprise pitch competition. And as she said, uh, you can find out more at moralfairground.com.au. And I'll also point out that there is a social enterprise world forum being held in Brisbane. It starts in two weeks at the end of September. And if anyone's interested in finding out about that, you can head online to sewfonline.com forward slash events. And I'll hand back to Ella now. Excellent. Yeah, I was just going to take a short music break. Um, so this is Sheena Williams and his African percussionists. We'll be back with you soon. <laughs>
You're listening to 3CR, and that was Sheena Williams and his African percussionist with Aboju Logan. And over to you, Grace. Yes. So now we'll be listening to a recap interview. Um, Mar- Mar- we'll do, be doing a recap interview where Marissa from Doing Time did with Uncle Jack Charles, who unfortunately passed away yesterday. So... A, Uncle Jack Charles was uh, always re- being remembered as a great man who fought for the First Nations people and a legendary actor. The recap interview will be speaking about systemic issues with insidious questions of proof of app originality, which led to the Australian Council for the Arts amending their policy. And you're back with the Doing Time show, and we're going to be speaking now with Uncle Jack. Hello, Uncle. Hello, how are you? Is that you, Marissa? It is. It's great to have you. Um, yeah, yeah, it's good to be in, here, mate. In fact, I heard you on Radio National this morning, bright and early. Ah, oh, yes, yeah, yes, 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 with, uh, with what's his name, um, uh, get his name now, he cut me off anyway. He did. <laughs> <laughs> they, they put you on yeah. just before the news there. Yeah, 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 silly buggers. Anyway, um... As an elder, I thought I'd sneak in on the second week's rehearsal on the Monday on the way to rehearsals into the Arts Council of Australia, to the ATSI board of the Arts Council of Australia in Strawberry Hills there. And uh, I pulled down the manager and I said, listen, uh, uh, look, I intend to uh, seek uh, a grant of $50,000 for a coffee table picture book I wanted to produce. And is it true that any of us seeking dedicated Aboriginal arts funding have to prove our Aboriginality? Uh, well, I, I, I can tell you I, I, I'm uncomfortable actually doing this. I don't think that I should have to prove my Aboriginality to you. You have been funding uh, your organisation. The ATSI Board of the Arts Council of Australia have been funding the shows that I've been in for many years. So get back to me at rehearsals on this matter. Okay, so indeed, <laughs> on the morning tea time came and the stage manager came up and said, uh, Uncle, uh, uh, the uh, uh, members of the board, of the ATSI board, uh, have said that uh, they make no exception. Uncle Jack has to prove his Aboriginality. Well, I uh, I took umbrage to that immediately and uh, I downed tools and uh, said, I, I won't be back today, I, I, I'm going out. Um, um, and I didn't let them know what was happening, but I just said, I'm, I'll be back tomorrow. So I came back the next day. I mulled it over, and I thought, well, hang on, this has been happening for many years. The Arts Council of Australia, the ATSI board, have dashed the dreams and hopes of so many people with that insidious question of proof of Aboriginality in the arts. And so... I remember Lisa Mazza saying to me many years ago that uh, he, she believed it was a bit of a perfy that there would be countless uh, Indigenous white... No, I mean, that, that there would be countless white people uh, accessing in the arts claiming to be Aboriginal when they're not seeking dedicated Aboriginal life. They don't have to do... You know, they just have to go into the same building to the Ordinary Arts Council and they don't have to prove anything, you know, to get a grant. So... So I, I, um, I, I went back the next day and I said, listen, I can't be 
in Sydney any, any longer than I have to be. I don't want to be here in Sydney. Uncle Jack, can you... I think what would be really fantastic at this point, just in case we've got new listeners that have tuned in, can you explain, while I've got you here, because yeah. um, I, I, I don't have much much of a chance to talk to you because you're so popular and so busy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Can you talk to us about what happened? Can you explain from the beginning what happened and the outcome? Can you talk about uh, that with us? uh, Yes, 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 yes. yes. Well, uh, as is the responsibility of an elder in my unique situation, the last grandfather of Indigenous theatre, I might have you all know, that... um, it's my responsibility to give a heads up uh, to the uh, ATSI Board of the Arts Council of Australia, particularly when I was seeking dedicated Aboriginal arts funding uh, of 50 grand for a coffee table picture book I wanted to produce. So on the way to rehearsals, I dropped into Strawberry Hills and pulled down the manager, John, and I said, John, uh, look, um, uh, you know who I am. He said, oh, yes, Jack, I know who you are, Uncle. Uh, so, look, uh, I'm um, I'm seeking, actually, seeking very shortly. I'll be putting in a request for a grant of $50,000 for a coffee table picture book I wanted to produce. And is it true that any of us seeking dedicated Aboriginal arts funding have to prove their Aboriginality? Well, John, I don't believe I should have to do that. I'm in your Yarn Up magazine on the foyer table right there. In the back page of speaking with Rachel, who's a member of the board, about Jack Charles versus the Crown Show. And uh, so um, get back to me about that, OK? So um, uh, by morning tea time, at um, uh, uh, the stage manager came up and said, yes, uh, two members of the board, uh, Uncle, have said that uh, they make no exception. Uncle Jack Charles has to prove his originality. So I took immediate exception to that request and I told the, the company that, look, I'm, I'm leaving for the day. I'm very upset. Just being asked to prove my Aboriginality by Arts Council of Australia, the Archie Board. And that, uh, I mean, uh, Secret River was being directed by Neil Armfield, who's a member of the Arts Council of Australia. You know, Rachel Mazur is a member of the Archie Board of uh-huh. the Arts Council of Australia. And, uh, and uh, so uh, I remember Neil coming up to me the next day when I pulled everybody together at Kate Blanchett from her office. She was the CEO of Sydney Theatre Company at the time, and I, I said, look, uh, I'm, I'm, um, I can't work up here in Sydney on any Sydney stage as an actor until my identity has been resolved by the ATSI Board of the Arts Council of Australia. I know it's not Sydney Theatre's company's fault, and I'm sorry, but I cannot perform on any Sydney stage as an actor playing, being a monkey, you know, for the ATSI board members to come and see Secret River. So what happened in the end, Uncle? Well, what happened in the end is I did leave, and I came back down and started the action with uh, uh, Megan Fitzgerald from Fitzroy Free Legal Service, who, by the way, has been working with many of those uh, stragglers that were struggling with the uh, uh, police, um, uh, the police handling of them uh, in uh, the lockdown, etc. She's had a few wins, uh, and um, and Ron Merkel, a local QT bloke in Collingwood, there. 
And um, so I left it then to uh, to do that. I did say, look, uh, all I want is the removal of that insidious question of proof of Aboriginality. I don't believe this organisation should ask any of us because I know that so many Aboriginal people have been roundly abused with this this um, uh, this process, this insidious questioning of their indigeneity. Um, uh, so I mean, even even Kutcher Edwards, um, had, uh, when he realised that I was taking an action against him, he said, "Yes, look, uh, Lydia Miller rang up and said that um, uh, Uncle Kutcher, your proof of Aboriginal Aboriginality has expired. Could you renew it?" What a stupid, you know. What? How silly is that? So is that that's true? The that's the reason why you need a mongrel like oh. me to undertake this this action against this uh, federal funding government body, albeit an Aboriginal one. You needed somebody definitely, you know, standing on solid ground. You needed uh, the grandfather of Indigenous theatre to take, and this is my responsibility as a granddaddy of Indigenous theatre. And so uh, within eight months, lo and behold, they um, uh, they removed that part of the policy. And because I reminded them that the next generations are not going to look Aboriginal, they're going to be red hair, hazel eyed, blonde hair, blue eyed, and they'll be holding tenaciously with fingertip grip onto their indigeneity. And you cannot dis- disappoint them and disrespect them and not believe them when they say they are Aboriginal because there are no white people to my certain knowledge, that would ever want to be an Aboriginal. And in the arts, white people in the arts do not go into the active board of the Arts Council claiming to be Aboriginal. They just don't do it. They have too much respect. People in the arts, the white, the gubs, have too much respect for the Indigenous people. And they wouldn't want As I say, you know, you'd have to be dip you're on drugs or, you know, uh, to, to uh, want to be an Aboriginal in this modern day and age. So it worked a success because within eight months, because Bill Vigery Theatre needed me up in the end of that year up there in Sydney to do um, Corinder, the story of Corinder, and so uh, to play William Berwick. Berwick. So, uh, yes, uh, so I had that win. And now, if you're red hair, hazel eyed, blonde hair, blue eyed, and you're seeking dedicated Aboriginal life funding, they have to believe you. That's the other thing I said. You know, you've got to remember that you're contributing to the distrust of Indigenous people. We are the most distrusted people in the nation. And the Hatsi Board of the Arts Council of Australia. It's terrible, Uncle Jack. I, I was really appalled because I actually heard it on ABC a couple of weeks ago. And it really, one of the things that I've always been doing nearly all my life actually is correcting people because I have some people that say, oh, half caste or half Aboriginal, and I say, no, Aboriginal. Not half. Okay, it's Aboriginal. Uncle, it's. I know, I know there are a lot of Aboriginal people coming and going into the this mob, this reparations mob, claiming to be stolen when they're not. I know there are a lot of gubs claiming to be Aboriginal when they're not saying that they're stolen. And that. So there are this hardline bunch, and I did tell them 
I said, have you forewarned these people that it, it is considered a crime to claim Aboriginality when you're not Aboriginal, when you're not? And uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a crime of fraud and perjury, and you can be charged with that. Indeed. So be, you know, you should give this warning out to these people. Give them a heads up. Don't let them fall into the trap of mucking up themselves, mucking themselves up, falling in this trap of easy money and etc. Pull them up at that. Pull them up at the gate, at the front gate, by saying it is a crime to be claiming Aboriginal, to be claiming stolen when you're not. It's a crime. But that really happens, Uncle. Yeah, that really happens. Really. Yeah, yeah, it's happening right now. Oh, sorry, sorry. I meant like people don't 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 go around, you know, proving. Like people don't don't say, "Oh, look, I'm I'm Aboriginal, so I want the money." If they're not Aboriginal, yeah, 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 they, yeah they do that. Yes, they. Do. Oh, they do. Oh, yes, they're on drugs or uh, or they're mentally deficient or something. But not so often. Huh? It doesn't. Well, it wouldn't happen often. I'm told there's heaps of them. No. Anyway, Uncle, let's let's you know what. Well, I never believed them anyway. No, but I do believe that there would be some that would be probably, going in there and that uh, they'd be taking advantage of these small numbers uh, to uh, uh, to 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 um, elder abuse people like Chuck. Not and you. Well, yes, yeah. well, yes, well, they did say that I have to prove my Aboriginality. Oh my and God! I took extreme exception to that. So you needed it. You needed a mongrel again in this situation. I played the mongrel, and Choco did too. Choco goes in there directly and says to them, "You know, you, you should, uh, Look, I am we, Aboriginal. We, you know who I ha- am. I have yeah, a sorry to of the reparations board there. Ask her if I'm Aboriginal." Yeah, <laughs> Uncle, it's really great that that you come onto the show, and I I wanted to have you on to talk about this, and also. Um, you know, talk about Uncle Archie as well because you were cut off and you really didn't have a lot of time on Radio National so I wanted to to give you this opportunity but we're just about finished now. The show's nearly finished. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So I'll come another time, anytime. Yeah. Any, that's fantastic. Come in sometime, Uncle. Okay, no worries. All right, Marissa. Take I, care, I, I've right? Been going to, I've been going to Choco's. Uh, Sorry? Uh, I've been going in there for Choco's uh, radio show. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. All right. Well, you take care of yourself, Uncle. Okay. Don't well, worry about it anymore. No, no, I'm not worried about it now. Don't get upset. All been, re- all been resolved. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't stress. Yes, yes. You know, uh, uh, going on 79 in September. You yeah, know, you've uh, got a, you've yeah, got other yeah. things to think about. Your beautiful yes, yes, work I, that you I, do. I, yes, I shouldn't be hassled with this insidious question of proof of Aboriginality. No, no, no. From but, cousins of mine. Yeah. All right, Uncle. All right, see you then. Big hug, take care. Thank you, and good good night to all you mob uh, listening to 3CR. (laughs) Bye. 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 Thank you, Marissa, for this lovely interview. That was Marissa from During Time speaking to Uncle Jack Charles, First Nations people activist and an amazing actor. That will be greatly missed. You can catch the show during time every Monday from 4 to 5 p.m. It, dec- it discusses issues faced by prisoners in the criminal justice system and migration detention centres. Now I'll be passing back to Ella.
Yeah, we're going to take a very quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to talk to Kirsty Bishop-Fox about this weekend's Zero Waste Festival. Rippenley Estate, located in Elston Week, is hosting a pre-loved cookery book sale. It will be held within the original Victorian kitchen and there will be over 400 books, all priced under $20. General property entry applies, which includes a tour of the mansion. The sale will run from the 25th of September to the 28th of September from 10am to 4.30pm. Explore a huge variety of recipe books spanning over many decades and genres. Head to ripandleestate.com.au for more information. National Trust of Australia is a 3CR supporter. Black Spark is an independent, volunteer-run bookshop, gallery, music and community space in Northcote, Nam, dedicated to creativity, learning and liberation. Black Spark is a space for the entire community, free of charge, hosting art, music and literary events. To keep Black Spark free, open and accessible to everybody, we need your help. We are calling for your support for our rent fundraiser to keep our doors open into the coming years. With your support, we can continue to host book and exhibition launches, art auctions, fundraisers, music gigs and facilitate opportunities and growth for emerging artists and grassroots communities. For more information, visit Keep Black Spark Alive on chuffed.com or check out Black Spark on all the socials. Keep Black Spark Alive! A 3CR supporter. CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and now we're going to talk about the Zero Waste Festival on this weekend. So it's a free event, and they're looking at all things around recycling, waste, sustainability. Uh, there's heaps of great events. I see there's a trash puppet event for kids. There's a clothing swap for adults and for kids. Uh, and I'm excited to hear more. So we're joined by the festival director, Kirsty Bishop-Fox. Uh, good morning, and welcome to 3CR, Kirsty. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Um, it looks like a really exciting event on this weekend. Tell us more about it. Well, we've actually got a whole lot of um, uh, waste warriors and, and would-be champions um, coming together to uh, to share their stories and and, um, and and their skills as well too. Uh, we've got the Repair Cafe coming along. So the Repair Cafe, if you don't know what a Repair Cafe is, I'm going to say first of all, it's got nothing to do with coffee, uh, although <laughs> many of them do drink coffee. Uh, but they're actually um, a, a great bunch of people who repair at St Kilda Repair Cafe and Brunswick Repair Cafe, and they're joining forces so we can bring our broken things in to be fixed. Oh, excellent. I should definitely try and get along to that one. I'm one of those people who has um, drawers full of, like, a phone that I'm not sure where to take, but I can't quite, um, yeah, better throw away and, yeah, much uh, even far less uh, useful items that I'm just kind of hoarding around because I can't quite throw them away. Um, but it's not really know, sustainable you if you're not fixed. using it either. <laughs> Yeah, you think they should be fixed, but you don't want to throw them out. So if people have kids' toys, you know how kids' toys can get broken quite easily or bits and pieces fall off, just just whatever. They're pretty clever people. 
Excellent. And um, how did the festival come about? Because this is the first year for the festival, but Zero Waste Victoria has been around a couple of years, right? Actually, no, it's not the first year of the festival. It's the fifth. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's the first year in person for a couple uh, of years. Ah, I see. So, first in-person festival. I need to do my research better. <laughs> yeah, first in-person in a couple of years. The first one was actually back in 2018. And that was, um, let's have a very small, humble beginnings in the sense that it didn't um, actually start out with the intention to be a festival, which might sound a little bit random. <laughs> we uh, were a group of people who were connected to a Facebook group, the Zero Waste Victoria Facebook group, and we had an idea to have an in-person meeting just to meet some people in the group because we got chatting a lot. And the idea was that we would have maybe like a, a speed data zero waste where we could learn about, you know, reducing food waste or cloth nappies or mending things, whatever it happened to be. And as it kind of evolved, I, I said, you know, this is a four-hour event and we've got a speaker coming now. It's kind of like a festival. And, and that's how it was born. Oh, excellent. Yeah, well, I think it um, yeah, sounds like it'd be much more fun in person anyway. So if, um, yeah, the last few years have gone well, I think this year will be a real success. <laughs> it is much more fun in person. We tried very hard to do it in person last year. Um, I mean, like in 2019, we had it in person as well, which was great. 2020, well, we won't even talk about that. But uh, <laughs> yes, we are excited to be in person because there are some things that just don't translate online. Like a repair cafe, admittedly, they did do some repair advice online for us. But to take it in person and actually see it and get it fixed is different. And uh, the clothing swap, which you, which you mentioned, people can bring along the clothes that they no longer want to wear that are in good and excellent condition, and uh, they can bring them in and swap them and refresh their wardrobes. So I think that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. And we said earlier in the show, very kindly donated two passes to the clothes swap. So I believe there's normally a small fee. Um, But yeah, if anyone wants to call in, we've got a um, pass to the children's clothing swap and also to the adult's clothing swap. Um, So yeah, listeners can call the station on 0394198377 today. Um, But yeah, so there's two uh, separate events. Is that right? Yes, yeah, so they're, it's, it's sort of, they're running back to back. So what happens is um, well, the festival starts at 10 a.m. And so from 10 a.m. people can drop their clothes off. They don't have to be there at 10 a.m. But if they don't want to carry them around for starting time, then that's the way to go. Pretty sensible. The, the, the kids' clothes swap opens at 11.30 and the adults' clothes swap opens at 1.00. Ah, oh, cool. Yeah, I'm sad I'm going to be in a class during that time. Otherwise, I'd love to come because, again, that's another thing. I've got a big bag of in my room that I can't quite <laughs> give away. <laughs> um, and um, do you have any uh, particular um, places outside of this event that you um, can recommend for listeners like me? <laughs> What, like clothes swaps? Or yeah, clothes swaps or, um, yeah, other avenues for recycling, um, whether it's, I think you were saying there's like a kitchen library on now. I was aware of the tool library. Yeah, there's a, there's a kitchen library in Carlton. Oh, um, okay. They're actually um, under the umbrella of uh, Cultivating Community. Um, so check them out. There's also one, I don't know where they're at. I know they were looking at getting going in Stonington. So if you search around, all these little initiatives close to home are, are popping up everywhere. Then the repair cafes. The repair cafes just seem to be, be around. Like I'm actually out in, um, in near the Croydon area and there's the repair cafe. We've got the um, Ringwood Repair Cafe and the Warrandyte Repair Cafe. So I would just look them up and find out what's around near you. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I'd definitely give a um, good plug for the Brunswick Tool Library. They've got a great selection of things. Um, they sure do. And it's, yeah, much better than having a shed full of all these um, tools you use extremely rarely, <laughs> if you like me. Well, that's 
right. There's a cost to that, and there's, there's more than a financial cost. There's a resource cost. If, mm. if you've got, you know, a, 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 I don't know, a hedge trimmer sitting in your your garage or your shed or whatever you happen to have, and, and you use it once a year, twice a year, well, that's just sitting there. When you've got a neighbour or the, the you know, the, the, the tool library, that you may as well just share it around. It just, it just makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, waste is a big issue and you're obviously spending a lot of time in this space and learning about it. Is there anything um, in particular you think people, um, any misconceptions people have about waste or how we're using things and that kind of thing? Oh, so many misconceptions about <laughs> waste. I think one of the biggest misconceptions people have about waste is dates on food. Mm. And and they look at that that food that the date as if you know that the carrots or the milk or whatever it is happens to know that that's what it really means and and when that date comes it it changes something. Uh, the, the fact is it doesn't. Uh, it's a legal requirement for dates to go on certain foods, particularly prepackaged foods. But just because that that date is there or isn't there, we actually realise that best before dates are just kind of there. Um, we would actually get much more mileage out of our food. Yeah, yep, that's it. Like you said, it's just a date. I think often with um, things around sustainability and recycling, it's it's because it seems simpler for people to, you know, have a date rather than have to make the decision yourself or it's simpler to, yeah, throw something away than go to the effort of um, finding how you can repair it. So I think events like this are really important in giving people the information and the tools they need. Yeah, I always say with something like milk, if milk's sitting on it, it's the 14th today and the date is today at 11.55pm, I promise you, your milk is not sitting there ready to combust into something that you can't use. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> not ticking <laughs> <laughs> You know, if you've ever smelt milk um, that is, you know, soured, there's no question, you know, and if, it, if it's not soured, you can still drink it. Yeah. And even if it is soured, you can make pancakes with it. It's still okay. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That one's a pretty easy one to tell. <laughs> that's right, that's right. So if it's sour, don't put it on your, on your, on your cereal, but do, do make pancakes or, or cook something with it. We've actually got a, um, a talk um, in the... We've got a whole lineup of uh, back-to-back uh, panel discussions, and one of them is The Secret Life of Food Waste. So I'm, I'm quite connected to that because I'll be um, um, moderating that panel, and we've got like some really interesting characters on there. Uh, we've got um, uh, like a, a Grant Miles from uh, Better by Miles. His whole business is based around um, saving food with it's close to or past its best but, um, before dates, and he sells that to his customers at a hugely discounted um, price, so everyone wins. We've got a researcher from Monash talking about food waste behaviours and a dumpster diver. So I'm really looking forward to, uh, to to hearing about that one. Yeah, yep, that'd be good to hear. I, um, yeah, I've never been dumpster diving myself, but it always kind of appeals. I wasn't sure how easy it is these days. It seems like it's getting harder and harder to find unlocked bins. <laughs> You know, it's interesting. I don't want to give too much away, but the, 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 the insight I got was that some of the reasons it's getting harder is not because of the bins being locked, but because there are better ways of um, redistributing food, like through um, harvest or um, second bite, those types of places. Mm. So that's a good reason why it's getting harder. Definitely. That's nice to hear. <laughs> mm. Um, and there's also a um, screening of um, a film on at the festival, Going Circular. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, Going Circular, it's the first time it's screened in uh, Melbourne and it's really some, it's kind of visionary but it's also everyday approaches that people can take to reducing their waste. 
the reality is as a society, if we keep having this take, make, use, toss um, approach, it's, it's just not sustainable at all. Things need to go around. You know, leftover scraps need to be composted. If it's from a building, it should be pulled apart, dismantled and reused where possible, not buried in the ground and, or burnt just because one person's finished with it. So the idea is just to have the circular economy going and um, if you can't make the, the full day of events, this isn't on until 4.30, so it's an afternoon screening. So hopefully uh, people, people can come to the afternoon even if they can't come for the full day. Excellent. Great. And um, I, I know you said we wouldn't mention 2020, but uh, <laughs> I am curious how um, uh, waste has uh, been affected over the last couple of years, because it seems like in, in some ways maybe things have been uh, better for the environment, more sustainable, and that, of course, like we couldn't fly so much um, and people are at home more, so maybe had more time for cooking and thinking about the things in their house. But then we also know it's... Um, it's been pretty bad in terms of just we've had to dispose of so many things, um, some necessarily, some not so much. Do, what do we know about how that's changed since the pandemic? Yeah, look, I do think there's been some ups and downs with it and it's affected different hot households in different ways. Uh, we do know from waste audits the amount of waste that has been created has increased. And there's quite a number of reasons for that. It's very hard to isolate and pinpoint. I mean, obviously, there's been a disposable personal protection that people have, have worn. There was also an increase in, you know, takeaway deliveries, which are always overpackaged. That's just what happens. And then there's been the pressure on the op shops who haven't been able to accept um, the amount of um, um, items coming in, even they've been good items because they've been inundated. But I also think that people have actually had time to declutter, which is also increased the volume. Mm. So that's that's been a negative about it. But on the other hand, I actually speak to a lot of people. I do, uh, you know, food waste workshops and people are thinking more about it. You know, they are at home and they're going, do you know what? I wouldn't have taken those leftovers into the office for lunch, but I'm having them at home. So they have started to rethink things from, from that scope as well too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was um, an interesting time with op shops at the end of the pandemic. I felt like there were really good pickings, but then I remember being in a shop and a lady was bringing clothes that got rejected and she was saying, I've tried to go to so many places, um, but they're all completely full. So, um, yeah, you couldn't give your clothes away for a period last year. <laughs> and if people are in that situation, I actually very rarely take things to op shops lately, purely for that reason, because I know they're inundated. Um, they can look up on Facebook or there's probably other places as well too, like there's the Buy Nothing groups or the Good Karma groups, even the notice boards, and just put things up and give them away. Yeah, yeah, it's nice just to know they're going to be used and enjoyed by someone else. I'm yeah, yeah, there. I've seen people get really excited by stuff that I've just thought, you know what, I'll put it up there and I don't think anyone will want it because it's a bit tatty um, or whatever it happens to be, like some of the kids' toys and things, and people have just been like two or three people have wanted them. I'm like, oh, I've only got one, sorry. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's been rehomed and it's been fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it feels good. <laughs> All right, uh, Kirsty, we're going to have to um, wrap up, but just before you go, can you give us a final plug for the show? How can people get along and attend the event this year? Yeah, they can jump onto um, the website, probably the easiest way, is zerowastevictoria.org.au. Um, you said 15 minutes would go fast. There's a whole program I spoke about, one talk. There's quite a few different talks about reducing waste. There's fashion, there's uh, waste warriors, a sharing economy. Um, so have a look at the program and uh, book in. Uh, it helps us to book in because that way we know the number's coming, um, but it's free for everyone to attend. Excellent. All right, thanks so much. I can't wait to uh, see more on Saturday. Wonderful. Thanks, Enjoy all. 
And that was Kirsty Bishop Fox uh, talking to us about the Zero Waste Festival on in Melbourne this weekend, which looks like a fun event. <laughs> Fascinated to know what you're going to pull out of your garage in the way of tools. Ella. Yes, <laughs> that head chainsaw there. I know none of them are mine. They're all the tool library. I didn't. Um, yeah, I had a very botched DIY job recently, so <laughs> I'm not one to talk about tools. <laughs> Okay, we'll change the subject. Well, (laughs) thank you to all our guests this morning and uh, thanks to the uh, Doing Time show for sharing that uh, wonderful now tribute to Uncle Jack Charles. Yeah. Ella and I will be away for two weeks, but uh, next week we'll have Grace hosting the show and then the following week Jacob's going to come back and uh, host for us. So I'm sure two weeks will fly by and then uh, we'll be back again in October. But, um, yeah, thanks for listening. And uh, we've now got Stick Together. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au.